Okay, well, some questions for you before we look at the text. How much planning do you do for your own happiness? For example, you might plan to go away somewhere on holiday, uh, in which case you'd be looking for weeks or months ahead of time, depending on how far you intend to go. Uh, you'd be looking at where you want to stay, what you want to do when you're there, um, all sorts of stuff like that. And in fact, the planning itself, although it is work, is also, or can be at least, quite fun. How much planning do you do for your children's happiness, parents? Well, um, oh, sorry, let me grab that. Well, we all know the answer to that. Uh, you plan for their education. Oh, something's gone wrong there. Uh, don't worry, I think we'll... we'll we will just leave it and I'll try it. Works. You, you plan for their education, you plan for their health, you plan for their activities, you plan for their sports. And um, let's just assume, we, we know this isn't true, but just go with me for the moment. Just assume that you knew that all the choices you made for your children were the best choices. They were always good, always wise. They would always turn out perfectly for their good and their happiness. Well, if that were the case... What would your children have to do to be happy? Well, they would just have to obey. Not so. They would just have to obey you. If all your plans were perfect and you were able to ensure that all those perfect plans came to pass, so of course we're just, this is all nonsense, but assume, <laughs> assume. They would just have to obey you to experience perfect happiness. Is that true? No, it's not true. It is true that they'd have to obey, obey you, but there would have to be something else. They would also have to trust in your love for them, in obeying you. Obedience can be just mechanical, or it can be in loving trust. If they didn't know that you loved them, then even while going through the motions of obedience, they might be suspicious of your motives. They might misunderstand, they might misinterpret your instructions as being restrictive instead of loving. And the misunderstanding would diminish, would take away from their happiness. So, for example, when you say, it's bedtime, it's not because you want to stop them enjoying the day. Your, your, your intention is not to take away from their pleasure, it's because you know that they need rest, body and soul. They need to rest and recover for... Uh, call it both defensive reasons in the sense that you don't want them to get overtired because then they're more likely to get sick. You also want them to be fresh and full of energy for the day ahead, whatever that holds. You want them to obey you for their good, to keep them from harm and to give them the best chance of having a good tomorrow. But for them to be happy in obedience means they need to trust you. They need to trust in your love for them. They need to know that you love them and that even though they may want to stay up later playing Xbox or out with their friends or whatever it may be, they trust more in your love and your wisdom than they do in their own ability to determine what will make them happiest. So, remember our assumption, which we know is wrong, if all your plans for happiness were perfectly wise and good, and your children trusted wholeheartedly in your love for them, then what would they have to do to be happy in life? Then it would be to obey you.
And that's the essence, I think, of what Jesus teaches us in this passage. Listen to, to the middle of it. I will give this another try. Can you see that? Okay. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So what's this whole story of the vine and the branches and fruit about? And the explanation that follows it from the end of the metaphor through to the end of the passage that Alyssa read for us. It is so that your joy would be complete. This is, in a sense, about obedience, but it's about obedience for your joy. Jesus directly links obedience to his commands to love and joy. Now, of course, God, the almighty creator, would be perfectly justified and is perfectly justified in demanding the obedience of his creatures. He could simply give the command jump and we would all rightly say how high and then start jumping. That's exactly the way it should work. That would be perfectly fitting as the relationship of, 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 a command, of command and obedience between a creator and those he created. But that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't, in this passage, say we should obey because God is infinitely powerful and really, in the face of such overwhelming power, what choice do you have? That's not what he says. He says, obey and your joy will be complete. So let's go through this and see how it works. He says in verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. He is the vine and we, Christian believers, are the branches. In other words, we are not individual vines in some great vineyard, on some big estate, each with our own roots sunk into the soil. Not in this, not in this metaphor. No, Jesus is the one vine and we, each one of us, are branches of that one vine. We receive life from him, just as a branch receives life from the main trunk of the vine. Apart from him, apart from the vine, the branch is dead. But the vine, in the vine, sorry, connected to the vine, the life of the vine flows into the branches. It fills the branch. It upholds and sustains. The fruit that grows in the branch grows only because life flows from the vine into the branch and makes it grow. And if Jesus is the vine, and he is, and we are the branches, which we are if we are in Jesus, then the life of Jesus fills us. The life of Jesus lives in you and me. The life of Jesus indwells and, vi and vitalizes and upholds and strengthens and sustains and fills you. You are alive spiritually only in him, or you are dead spiritually apart from him. So the kind of life that is Jesus' life is the kind of life that fills you. Now, he's not talking about biological animation. He's not just talking about physical not-deadness. He's saying that what is characteristic of Jesus' life, the kind of life that is Jesus' life, is the kind of life that fills you. So the question is, in this passage... What is Jesus' life, Jesus-like life, like? I get that right. <laughs> How does Jesus describe his own life in this passage? Apologies that this has um, picked up some, some things in the background, but I trust you can see it nevertheless. So what is Jesus' like, Jesus' life like, like? I can't quite get my head around that at the moment. 
Well, the first thing he says in this passage is that Jesus knew his father loved him. If you look with me at verse 9, As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus lived in the constant conscious awareness, the constant enjoyment of his father's love. It wasn't just a fact he knew from a textbook. He knew it. He lived it. He knew his father loved him. He knew his father's purposes. Verse 15, he says, um, I no longer call you servants. A servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus knew and understood his father's purposes, his father's saving purposes, his father's intention to bring glory to himself through the Son. His Father's purpose to save you and me. Jesus knew His Father loved Him. And He knew what His Father intended to do in the world through Him. He knew His Father's purposes. And He obeyed His Father perfectly. Verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remained in His love. Jesus obeyed his father perfectly. And obeying his father, verse 11, was his joy. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. As Jesus obeyed his father perfectly, knowing his father's love, knowing his father's purposes in the world, to save, to redeem a people for himself, obedience was his joy. So if we are in Jesus, if we are branches in this vine, what kind of life fills us? What does that look like in us? We know the love of God through Jesus. We know the Father's purposes through Jesus. Jesus calls us to obey His commands, and obedience to His commands is joy. Let me read verse 11 again. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. You see, for Jesus, love and obedience belong together. They aren't enemies. Knowing his Father's love, understanding his Father's purposes, Jesus wanted to obey. It was his pleasure and his joy to obey. And so if his life, if Jesus, if Jesus like life flows through our veins spiritually, then love and obedience belong together. And it is our joy to obey. Now, we have to choose something at this point. We have to choose whether we're going to believe this or not. It is simply a reality that the world does not believe that love and obedience belong together. These things don't belong in the same category. I, um, let me see if this works. It's looking promising. I wonder how many of you watched the, uh, the royal wedding last year? You did? No, I didn't. You didn't? <laughs> Well, according to whatever website I looked it up on, apparently 1.9 billion people watched it. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, a little over 70 years ago, 1947, Princess Elizabeth, now of course Queen Elizabeth II, married the Duke of Edinburgh. Apparently it was the first royal wedding broadcast and 200 million people uh, either watched or listened over the radio to the, to the ceremony. 
Now, those who were listening on the radio will have heard the future queen vow to love, to cherish, and to obey her husband. It caused some controversy, I believe, I read about, as many thought it was wrong for a future monarch to make that sort of pro- a promise. A monarch should not be promising to obey anybody, not even her husband. But Princess Elizabeth, as she was at the time, chose to, to communicate her devotion to her husband in the traditional way, with the traditional vows. Um, so I, I thought it was quite funny. I was reading up on the, on the history, the tradition um, of this vow in England, and I came across the traditional, apparently the traditional old Anglo-Saxon form of it. Ladies, you're going to love this. Please don't stone me. This is what it said. Um, the bride would promise to take her husband to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, so far all okay, I think, to be bonny and buxom <laughs> in bed and at board till death do us part. <laughs> and the, the historians explain apparently bonny and buxom at the time meant good and obedient, not um, amorous and plump. <laughs> So, um, so Queen Elizabeth, though her, uh, sorry, Princess Elizabeth, uh, her vow was somewhat less colourful, but stood in, in the tradition. In the tradition, the new Duchess, though not the first to do so, broke with this tradition, vowing to take Prince Harry to love and to cherish, but not to obey. Now, I have to say, I'm not really all that concerned about royal weddings. That's not my point here. My point is just that obedience is, is not very fashionable, is it? Think about it. To love somebody, to commit, to promise to love somebody till death do you part, is quite a lot harder than to promise to obey them, isn't it? Obedience can just be mechanical. It can just be going through the motions. Love can't. To promise to love is a harder thing. To promise to cherish. That's an easy thing to say when a relationship is all moonlight and roses but somewhere down the line it's going to be daylight and dishes and uh, cherishing can be quite a demand to obey seems comparatively easy in some respects doesn't it so why did she leave it out well I have to say I didn't actually ring her this week to ask but might it just be because we put love and happiness on the one hand and obey in different categories of life. Love is an emotion, it's a good feeling, happy and wonderful inner sense of delight in another. Obey is an action, and a forced one at that. It's not a happy feeling, it's a demand. It's somebody else benefiting at my expense. I have to do something that they want me to do, and I don't want to do. Love makes me happy, obey costs me. Love adds to my pleasure. Obey takes away my pleasure. Love expands my soul. Obey diminishes my dignity. So I won't obey my parents. All the school rules, all the speed limits. I won't submit to my husband. I won't submit to my elders. I'll just move churches instead. And God? Well... Though God in Christ has saved us, it, is, it doesn't mean that our, 
the bent of our souls towards disobedience is completely gone, does it? We still struggle with sin. We still battle the sinful nature every day, not to mention the constant lies of the world and the devil telling us, be free, be the master of your own destiny, be the captain of your own soul. Now maybe, maybe for some here you don't call yourself a Christian. Maybe the idea of obeying God just isn't an issue to you at all. If he even exists, why would I obey him? But friends, what if we've got it all wrong? What if love and obey, joy and obedience are not enemies? What if it's not true? Instead, what if true love does command obedience? What if true obedience is a way in which you receive love? Just as a trusting child receives love, sorry, receives the instruction of her mother as an act of love. In our earlier example, go to bed, for example. What if Jesus, in perfect love, and with your overflowing, uncontainable, bursting at the seams happiness as the goal, commands you to obey? What if that's the picture? What if joy and obedience come together in love? You see, we can go through the logic of the text and be convinced of it, but the sinful nature in you doesn't want to die. It wants to live. Sin, and we all still battle against it, sin doesn't want to believe in God. Sin does not want to believe God is good. And sin has many cheerleaders in the world, not to mention the devil himself. Sin still lies to you. The Word of God says to you, Obey your way into happiness. Sin shouts back, God cannot be trusted. Don't do what He says, that's not the way to happiness. Follow me, let's go our own way. My dear friends, what lie is sin telling you right now? Maybe it sounds like this. You don't need to say sorry. She's the one in the wrong, and she should be apologizing to you. Well, Jesus says, bear with one another and forgive one another. If any one of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Or maybe sin sounds like this. They're so old-fashioned, they just don't understand. Well, Jesus says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Maybe sin sounds like, go on, click there. It'll be fun, and it's not harming anyone anyway. Jesus says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Maybe sin says to you, but everyone else does it on a Sunday. I don't want to miss out. The Lord says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, in a moment, I'm going to pause and ask for just a minute or so of silence. And I'm going to ask you to take this minute to bow your head, bow your heart before the Lord and ask him to show you where you have not trusted in his love. Where you have not believed that his command to you is for your joy. Where you have believed the lie. Now, friends, I'm not saying this to condemn you. You're not the one lying to yourself. 
the devil, it's the sinful nature. But the sin in us likes to believe those lies. And we need to repent of them. And we need to believe that our God, our Father, has our good in mind when He gives us these commands. So why don't we take just a minute and ask the Lord to show you where you have not trusted, where by disobedience you have said, Father, in this area, I actually don't trust you. I think I can attend to my own happiness here better than you can. And then ask him to bring to mind some scripture, some command, some principle from his word to show you what he wants for you in that area. So I'm just going to take a moment to keep quiet uh, and let you think about that. And then we'll continue. Father, we ask that you would forgive us where we have not trusted you. Forgive us for doubting your love. Forgive us for believing the lie that you are not for us. We repent, Father. Help us to obey in whatever you have brought to mind now. Amen. Now, friends, what is the Lord's instruction to you? Having confessed your unbelief, having brought to mind an area in which you need to obey, what is the Lord's command to you? Verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. Sorry, I misstated that. That's not His command to you. It's His promise to you. Remain in His love. Remain in His love. Now, He doesn't mean that if you don't obey Him perfectly, He will stop loving you. Rather, He means that obeying His commands is a way of receiving His love. His commands are always perfect, always loving, always for your good, always perfectly wise, always with your joy in mind. If that's true, and it is, then obeying His commands is a way of receiving His love, of dwelling in the place of His love, of abiding in, of living in love expressed to you through His command. Just as I give the command to my children, it's time for bed, I know what's good for them. I know they need a certain amount of rest for their own good, for their own physical and emotional health, they must get enough sleep. And so, by obeying me and going to bed, by receiving my command, they receive my love expressed to them in that command. They dwell in my love by obedience. They remain in it. If they disobey, that doesn't mean I stop loving them. But it does mean that for that moment, in respect of that thing, they have chosen not to remain in my love, not to receive it, not to um, well, to take themselves outside of the love that would have been theirs by obeying that command. Go to bed. So let's come back to the big picture here. Jesus commands your obedience for your joy so that you will be truly happy. My hope is that um, between last week's passage... <clears throat> beg your pardon, between last week's passage where we saw that our obedience is an expression of Christ's victory through us over sin, over unbelief. And, and this passage, we're beginning to change our minds about obedience. I want us to obey Jesus' commands, but not to obey them in a dutifully resolved way. I want us to want to obey 
to enjoy obeying. And if you don't yet, then I hope that you at least want to want to obey. Make that your prayer. The truth is, if you are in Christ, as we saw earlier, if you are a branch of the vine, it cannot be any other way. For, um, now, I've, I, I've not really said much about specific things that Jesus wants us to obey, either last week or this. Um, and in part, that's for reasons I've already explained. It's that I, I want us to, before, before getting um, concerned about specifics, I want us just to want to obey. But in part, it's also because of the way John records this gospel, or at least John records what Jesus says in this gospel. There aren't a lot of specific commands in this gospel of the uh, kind of moral obedience type. You recall we discussed this last week. The gospel is, however, full of commands like receive me, follow me, believe in God, believe in me, abide in me, abide in my love, receive the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus doesn't intend just to give, a, or, or to give us specific commands for every conceivable situation of life. That would be ridiculous, of course. Obey Jesus does not mean that every moment of every day, every time you're confronted with a decision, you need to go search the Bible for some specific command to obey. There may be specific commands relating to whatever's facing you, but there's a reasonably good chance that there isn't. Now, what Jesus wants is for us to be so shaped by him, by his life within us, that we don't need a specific command for every situation. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we can minimize specific commands where they are there. Where there is a specific command, we obey it. But what, we, what Jesus wants for us is to spend time with him, getting to know him, absorbing from him, learning from him, becoming more and more like him, so that we don't need a specific command for every single situation. And that's what he goes on to say here. Does this come up? Let his words remain in you. Verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. My words remain in you. Well, we have his word. It's here in my hand. It's on your lap, on your phone, wherever you have it. What is the Bible for? It intends to transform us. It intends to conform us to his likeness. So that in a given situation where we can't find a specific command, should I take this job or that one? Should I marry this guy or this girl? Should I buy this car or go on holiday there or choose to commit to this ministry in the church? Whatever. There, there probably isn't a specific command that touches on 99% of life. But if his word abides in us, if we remain in his word, if his words abide in us, dwell in us, shape us, give us life, then more and more, as we face these situations, we will discern his will. We will know his leading. We will know the Father's pleasure. We will know, as Jesus knew, the love of the Father, the purpose of the Father, and what it means to obey the Father and trust in His love in relation to whatever that situation is. I'm not saying we'll get it right every time, 
but we'll have more and more confidence in making those decisions. So let's remain in His Word. This is what Bible reading is for. It's not just so we can say we read our Bibles. It's so that we can abide in His Word, so that, remember the end of all of this, is your joy. Your Bible reading is connected to your joy, as is your prayer. He goes on there to say in that same verse, uh, verse 7 that is, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. And then again towards the end of the passage, um, verse 16, uh, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. As we abide, as we trust in his love, as we know his purpose and are shaped by that, as it is our joy and our desire to obey and we abide in his word, so it just it comes naturally to pray those things to the Father. And the Father answers prayer. Bible reading and prayer are not Christian duties alone. They are Christian duties, but they are for your joy. And what, what kind of fruit will come from this? Well, everything that Christ-likeness means. There are two things, though, that, um, that are hinted at in here that I won't spend really any time on just to, to point out and leave for you to consider, uh, perhaps in home groups or some other time. But um, the two things that stand out here are, number one, love for God's people. In... Um, Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. As we are shaped by his word and prayer, it makes perfect sense that we would love what the Father loves. Who does the Father love? He loves his church. doesn't mean he doesn't love the world as well. We're coming to that in a moment. He loves his church. He would love God's people the way Jesus loved them, which he says in here is by laying down his life. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. As his word shapes us and prayer shapes us, we are moved to love God's people. Not just to do it dutifully because we know we should, but because we actually experience joy in doing it. And finally, mission. This is less obvious in the text, but towards the end of this passage, verse 16, or 15 and 16, Jesus says, I've, known, I've made known my Father's purpose to you, and then he goes on to say, I chose you to bear fruit, to go and bear fruit. What is the Father's purpose? The Father's purpose is to make the Son known and that the Son would be loved and honored and glorified. So in light of that purpose to say, I have chosen you to go and bear fruit, hints at least that the fruit Jesus has in mind here, fruit that will last, are converts, people coming to faith in Christ. Others coming to know and love Jesus as we do. And as a final encouragement as I close, as you do these things, as we abide in the word, as we give time to pray, as we ask the Lord to be at work in our hearts to make us want to obey, to love to obey, the Father watches over and tends the vine. He watches over your growth. At the beginning of this passage, um, verse 1 and 2, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener or the vine dresser. As we do this, the father is actively at work to increase our happiness. Think about that. All the power, all the wisdom, all the kindness, all the resource of the almighty, uncreated, eternal God 
is at work for your happiness in obedience. Friends, let his word abide in us. Pray that they will so shape and transform us that Jesus' life will bear fruit in sacrificial love for one another and in making Jesus known in this town and beyond. Let us together love to obey. Amen. Let me pray, and uh, John and Anna can come up and lead us in, in a song of response. Father, I pray two things, as we already have, that you would continue gently, through your word, to show us where we have not believed you, to show us where we have believed the lie, the evil dirty, filthy, wicked lie that you are not good. What greater lie could there be? What more evil thing could ever be proclaimed in the world than that God is not good? And yet we have believed it in a hundred little ways and some big ones. Would you be at work to show us those things and help us to repent and help us to believe you in those things, not just in general, not just in theory, but in specifics. Would you make it our joy to obey? And Father, would you be at work in our hearts to draw us more and more to your word and to prayer, individually and as a community, so that time in your word would not feel like I'm doing this because I know I ought to, because I know it's the right Christian thing to do, but it would be with the heartfelt desire that you would transform us, that your life, the life of your Son, would flow in and through us to make us fruitful vines for your glory. May this be true of us, each one. May this be true of our home groups. May this be true of us as a church. May it be that this town and beyond sees in us not dutiful, upright, moral people who do the right things, but people who love to obey their God. Be glorified as this becomes ever more true in us, Father. In Christ's name, amen.